even if you don't think that you have a connection to the mission set, if you just come to the history office and look in the archive, you will see that in some cases there were points in history where your squadron is literally the only thing that kept the wing going. What's going on, Refill Team Fairchild? As you guys know, the whole point of this podcast is just to help bring our community together. I've broken it down into simple things. We're just going to hack it out. We'll talk about humor and humility, accountability, connectiveness, and also kindness, and what other strings for our bows our guests have to bring to the table, because that's how we make that beautiful music. So let's go ahead and get this episode started. All right, Refill Team Fairchild, today we have Miss Rebecca Horton. I hope you guys know who she is. If you don't, she is our base historian. She got here, when did you get here, ma'am? Last February. Last February. Uh, if you just want to, first of all, really glad to have you out here today. I know you have a wealth of knowledge. I was just talking to you earlier about how uh, Sergeant Laverne, who recently retired, you were the one historian that she actually enjoyed the presentation <laughs> during the professional enhancement courses. So if that isn't a, a positive way to start the conversation, I don't know what is. But thank you for being here today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you. Uh, my name is Rebecca Horton. I uh, previously was stationed at the Air Force Special Operations Command down in Herbie, and that's where I learned how to do this job. I was a Palace Acquire intern, so I came in straight from college. I got okay. a Bachelor's of Science in Military History, and now the Air Force is helping me get through my master's program with Johns okay. Hopkins, and I'm pursuing a master's in museum studies. So all of the work that I do in the archive is also helping me get uh, advance my career. Why did you choose uh, a bachelor's in military history? So I am a military kid okay. through and through. My dad is Air Force and my grandparents are all Navy. So I just grew up in the military. So it made sense that as I was going around to all of these different places and seeing all of these different bases, I got a wealth of knowledge already. And by the time that I was in college, I had listened to so many veteran stories. I knew that recording those is what I wanted to do. Okay, that's awesome. Was your dad a crew chief? Was he maintenance? I can't remember. No, no? he was okay. on the AC-130s uh, as a gunner. Oh, okay. Awesome. So. I knew one of the individuals a long time ago that I went to FTAC with was an aerial gunner. <laughs> I have no idea if he's still in the military anymore. Now I'll have to check on him. So I wanted to have you on here, and you mentioned that it would be a good time to try and get this podcast out around March. Why is March so important to Fairchild? So Fairchild has a lot of different birthdays. We recognize March 1st as our official kudos to everybody birthday, but really it's the birthday of the base when... Uh, Fairchild Air Force Base opened up as Spokane Army Air Depot, and it's also the birthday of the 92nd Bombardment Group, which has ties to our ops group and today's ops group. They both started up on the same day, and we just chose to pick that birthday out of the about 12 different birthdays that we have as the official anniversary. What are some of the other dates that are important? Do you know any of them off the top of your head? Um, off the top of my head, January 19th is the official day that the first base commander reported to Spokane. Oh, cool. And he was one of the first five airmen to learn to fly. Oh, wow. He trained with Hap Arnold. Um, wow. And then he cross-trained over into CE and became the person that built all of the bases during World War II. Oh, wow. So he started off as a flyer and then he became... Engineer. Enlist, basically enlisted is what it sounds like, or at least he how he stayed we... as an officer. Oh, okay. Uh, but he 
was working in the Pentagon when Spokane became a base, and they sent him, because Pearl Harbor had just happened, they sent him here to rush the job, Gosh. and so he became the first official base commander in oh, January cool. 19th. Awesome. So you probably, and you know this for sure since you're the historian and you've been here for a little while, but we hear fame's favored few thrown out quite a bit. Fame's favored few is actually a direct result of a morale campaign during 1944 in the the later half of November. Um, The officers wanted to do something that would unite and inspire their airmen, like a rally cry that they could paint all over the walls and just inspire everybody. So they decided to put out a contest and this contest was any airman could put in a submission for what this motto would be, that they'd fly into war (laughs) and as they did bombardments, cry out. And they got about 250 submissions, but the one that ended up winning was submitted by First Lieutenant John A. Marple, who is an officer assigned to the 326th Squadron, and he submitted Fame's Favored Few. And so they went around with all of those 250 names, and they did a couple of spot polls from about 560 voters. They they voted at uh, different party events. They had one that was actually at the Aero Club dance. They also polled in the mess hall, and there was one poll that actually occurred during a weekly activity report. And all of the officers ended up voting on this particular one, and it just became the rally cry for the entire organization. And the actual source documents that we have explaining this morale building signboard was that it was eventually plastered all over the camp that they had. Oh, wow. So every single squadron then made their own version of this sign. So in our World War II archive, you'll actually find different photographs of signboards throughout the, throughout Europe that say fame's favored few oh, wow. that our airmen actually painted as they went into different stations and war areas. That's kind of cool because now we usually have stickers. Every squadron has their own sticker or organization usually has one mm-hmm. and we'll plaster them when we go TDY to bars or even other locations, other bases, uh, base ops sometimes will just kind of plaster them all over the place. So it's kind of cool to hear that once upon a time, just like everything else, we started somewhere and it was just painting or writing it on the wall instead of having a convenient sticker. Yeah. (laughs) It always seems to start out at the front gate, though. This one, uh, this one started out with a giant sign at the the front entrance gate to the field, and then it slowly trickled its way into the squadrons. Um, And it it makes for some really cool photographs. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. So... I know we kind of had a schedule or an idea on what to talk about. What is some of the history that you found most interesting about Fairchild? So I actually think that the years leading up to Fairchild becoming a base is super cool. So we talk a lot about how important the city of Spokane is to Fairchild and our honorary commander program and how connected we are to the city leaders, but we don't actually realize how extensively the city leaders fought for Fairchild to exist from like the time of the Great Depression to 1940s when it was put in to ensure that Spokane became the center of excellence in not only aerial refueling, but in aviation as a whole. So there are a number of different fields that created Fairchild, but it is interesting to me to see that even our 141st air refueling wing co-partners they helped get us to where we are today and to the Team Fairchild that we know today. And that started all the way back in the 1920s. 
okay. with the 116th Observation Squadron, which is where they get their lineage and honors from. So as the legend for the 116th goes, the adjunct general to the Air National Guard was wanting to put a the very first National Guard squadron in Washington, and he got on a train and went to all of the major cities and what was basically giving this offer of whoever can raise $10,000 first gets the first National Guard squadron for the state. Okay. And the Spokane City leaders wanted it so bad that by the time he stepped back onto the train car, they were sending that telegram that said, all right, we have our $10,000. We want the squadron. Okay. Let's ha- let's go. But the only airfield that we had in Spokane at the time was a little airstrip called Parkwater Airstrip, which was only f- big enough to hold a couple of civilian aircraft. Oh, wow. When the National Guard got there, it got renamed to Feltz Field, which is what the National Guard calls their home base now. Okay. And Feltz Field became the center of where they did all of their operations. And by 1927, they had built operations enough that they were able to support the National Aeronautics Association National Air and Derby Race, Jeez. which brought in airmen from all across the country, including a up-and-coming airman known from the Army Air Corps as Lieutenant James H. Jimmy Doolittle. Oh, okay. So he actually flew in, um, and he was such a showboat at the time that our records say that he buzzed into the downtown Spokane area upside down hmm. in one of his trademark loops. <laughs> so it, fun stuff like that, and then we know we end up seeing Jimmy Doolittle years later in military history yes. as a huge p- component of innovation in military aviation. That's awesome. By 1927, with this National uh, Air Derby, we see Spokane become the leaders for aviation in the country. Wow. Um, And then a couple years later, in 1929, we see the very first flight of the Spokane Sun God One. So if any of you have seen Colonel Bentley's KC-135 and noticed that it on its painted Spokane Sun God 2, it harkens back to this particular plane that took off from Feltz Field and conducted the first transcontinental round-trip flight for the U.S. It participated in nighttime aerial refuelings. Now, it wasn't the refueler. It was the one receiving the fuel. Okay. But it went from San Francisco to New York and back to Spokane, and it recorded about 120 hours of flight time, which was unprecedented at the time. And it uh, was 7,200 point-to-point miles the entire trip. Jeez. In the 1920s, Spokane is already setting out to be a leader in aviation, and that's with Feltz Field. But by the time World War II starts ramping up, we see that Feltz Field is no longer big enough and we okay. can't expand anymore. So we're at capacity and we need to bring the civilian flights somewhere else. And so they pick a spot on Sunset Boulevard and they start building a different airfield for the <laughs> civilians. And it's not quite finished by the time that World War II really comes about and comes online, but the city leaders go, the War Department really needs Feltz Field. Let's offer the entire field to them. And so the city leaders say, here it is, take it if you need it. The War Department comes out, they take one look at it, and they go, absolutely not. It's too small, we can't do anything with that, but we see that you're building Sunset Field. Give us that for the entire war, 
and we will lease it from you and at the end of the war we'll give it back as a fully functioning Mm -hmm. airfield and knowing it was an all-or-nothing deal the city leaders said all right let's do it and for a single dollar a year the war department leased an entire airfield for a for the entire war and about three years later they gave it back and um it was while it was a military asset it was known as geiger field okay and now that we the city of spokane has it um it's been renamed since to spokane international airport so when you fly into geiger field and you look at that weird airport code of geg yes it actually harkens back to its time as a part okay. of the military okay so fun facts that you know <laughs> yeah i actually live over by the airport and i've noticed yeah geg and most of the time you can kind of get a, a frame of reference on what airport it is mm-hmm. by that. And I was always very confused and didn't even put it together with Geiger Field, even though I know it was called that at one point. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, so <laughs> with all of these fields that the city leaders have established, by the time that World War II really starts ramping up and we realize that the U.S. is going to have to get involved, the city leaders realize they don't have any permanent military facilities. All of our airfields are either leased or they're National Guard fields, and they're not necessarily guaranteed to stay around. So when the War Department announces that they're going to put a maintenance depot in the northwestern region of the United States, the city leaders go, that's our ticket. Maintenance is how we do it. We secure this depot and we will become the center of aviation for the, the Northwest. Sure. And they start fighting tooth and nail. Their biggest contender was Everett Washington, who hosted the option of maintenance depot by sea, because they're right there on the coast. Um, However, throughout this competition, there a number of things occur, including the fact that it would cost a small fortune to put a airfield on the Everett property. And the weather's not as good, and they're not as protected from the coast side, which by that point, Japan is already sending incendiary bombs over through into Washington. And some of them are already reaching Spokane. So the War Department goes, it's not really protected. We need something further inland. And they look at Spokane's package, and not only do they offer the protection from the mountain range, most of the time better weather, although it is a little rainy every now and then, They also had in writing from the local rail companies that any maintenance supplies in and out of the depot would be prioritized shipment-wise by rail. So if they couldn't fly it out, they could use a train and ship it out, which is why most of the north side of base, yes, this is what this side is. Sure. (laughs) Most of the older half of base is shaped a little different. It'll have bay areas that are a little thinner than what you would expect an 18-wheeler to be fit into. It's actually because it wasn't built for 18-wheelers. It was built for train cars. So the old CPTS building, or well, it's still the CPTS building, but that building used to be where everybody onboarded, offloaded, all of the transportation supplies came in. So that side of base, including where um, we now know where the AFES building is, mm-hmm. where we have our cons squadron. Yes. All of that used to have rail lines actually coming onto base. They've since left the facility, but that is also why we have those very cool train cars in the airpark. Okay. Um, so 
when we look at Spokane and Fairchild as a whole and its history, it's really trains and airplanes. That's what got us here. That's cool. Uh, I was actually at CE getting my immersion tour, and one of the airmen that was leading me around, he mentioned that it, their building is an old train station. Because mm-hmm. I was like, man, how do you guys not get lost, and why are these rails so high? Is it for unloading? And they're like, well, no, because we don't really need that. But here's the fun fact. So, wow, that's really cool. So I'm guessing all those buildings that are shaped like that were probably all... Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Which is also fun when you think about the what we know now is the, I think they call it the depot. Yes. It, that is actually built in one of the buildings that used to be the depot. So it would have been where everything got taken off the trains, got stored, and now we use it for a resiliency area and a morale builder. Is that why it was named the depot or the depot? Probably. Okay. I wasn't here when that happened, so I can't say sure. with certainty, but I would assume that's probably, it harkens back to its time. That's kind of cool. So. Yeah. You know all this cool stuff that I think sometimes we just kind of take for granted when we look around and we see the lack of things, but knowing some of the history about the buildings, especially CPTS and Comm Squadron and CE, those are really cool facts. Yeah. And then there's always Hangar 2050, which everybody loves to learn about. <laughs> and it is the the big hangar that we have yes. that everybody knows. It's easily identified, but it's the first hangar that was built. It, it was one of the first facilities to come online during 1943. It didn't get fully operational until October, okay. but the very first aircraft to be serviced inside Hangar 2050 when it opened was the very famous B-17 known as the Memphis Bell. Okay. So I got a specialized engine overhaul and Fairchild or Spokane Army Air Depot at that point um, was already so famous for its maintenance work that they flew the Memphis Bell into Spokane, had it sitting on the flight line waiting for 2050 to open so that our maintainers could be the one that fixed it. That's awesome. So... <laughs> We like to, in the History Museum program, we like to say history makes you smart, but heritage makes you proud. So there, I'm full of all of these history factoids, but until you're able to actually see it or connect it with the job that you're coming in every day to do, it doesn't really make you realize that you're contributing every time you come in to the next chapter and the next generation of that legacy. So when we talk about our maintainers from the 1940s, they're connected to our maintainers today sure. because of the big chapter book that is maintenance here at Fairchild. Oh, that's cool. I didn't realize you have myself and certain fields in the room with you right now. We are both maintainers by trade, and I don't know if certain fields knew this. I definitely didn't know what a big impact our maintainers had on getting Fairchild to basically be what it is today or help leading that charge on being the reason to get the depot, mm-hmm. to get the maintainers here, to be able to fix planes that are infamous at this point. That's really cool, and I think that it's a nice it's a nice reminder. And we know we work hard. We get to see our, for us, we get to see our craft take off every day. When we see a plane fly, we know that's the end result. They're going to be able to go past their gas, make sure that other aircraft are taken care of. But sometimes when we're out on the line and we're changing that tire, we're in that tank, we're in a very hot or very cold avionics rack, that there is a bigger picture and that maybe someday 
the 20, the 20 Mito will be something that we see in a history book. It's already in a history book. <laughs> I write that history book. So my job is to record the history and heritage of what you do every day. Not only am I recording the flying hours, the sorties, all of the, the fun stuff that our aviation squadrons do, but I also re record the maintenance components, the um, comm squadron, every single bit of this pandemic I get to write about. True. And how you guys have mitigated those issues. And it literally goes in an annual history report that includes a play-by-play -play chronology of what you guys have accomplished. That history is written down for years from now, people to look back and say, this is what they did in 2021. This is what they did in 2022. And look at all of the innovation that they managed to achieve. It might be good to get you over. I know our comm squadron has a hard time fitting in and figuring out how they contribute to the mission. So maybe we can get you over to their squadron and you can oh, kind of share some of the history and some of the highlights from last year even to make them understand. Yes, you don't work on the flight line. No, you're not feeding them. No, you're not flying the aircraft. But this is how you guys have directly impacted or Im made an impact on how Fairchild operates. So part of my job as base historian is also to maintain a heritage collection on every single squadron that comes through Fairchild. So the ones that have been deactivated or inactivated okay. on our base, I still maintain a heritage collection on them. That includes their emblems, their patches, any awards that they give out, and those are all maintained in the base archive. Even if you don't think that you have a connection to the mission set, if you just come to the history office and look in the archive, you will see that in some cases, there were points in history where your squadron is literally the only thing that kept the wing going. And it's been so, I feel so privileged to be able to maintain this collection because there are some of the coolest stories in there, including our LRS is connected to a Medal of Honor recipient oh, cool. that is a Spokane native who earned his Medal of Honor in the Army, but wasn't done with the Army after he received his Medal of Honor. He was injured, but still loved his job so much that he went back to work as a civilian for the Air Force. Oh, cool. And so our LRS is connected to him, and he worked in trans the old transportation squadron, okay. which has ties to LRS today. There are a number of force support mission areas that we still see coming up. Like just this week, I was offered a scrapbook of force support specific information. One of the cooks for Geiger Field, who eventually, when Geiger Field moved onto Fairchild, came with, maintained a scrapbook of her entire experience from the 1940s into the 1960s. And so we're about to acquire a huge collection of photographs and primary source documentation that show just how critical our force support mission airmen are to the overall mission. That's awesome. Because she was responsible for feeding all of those airmen before they went overseas. Which is important because when we look at World War II history, Spokane trained all of our bombardment squadrons. So it's the head trainer for bombardment. It's also one of the lead maintainer areas, and it was a huge center for aviation during World War II. And once all of that got consolidated here at Fairchild, it's really cool to see that we maintained that center of excellence 
namesake. Um, and we have since just consolidated our mission area from bombardment to refueling. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. Speaking of Geiger, I, I live in the old base housing. <laughs> the, the really old from the 1950s. It's It was cheap, and you know what? It's kept a roof over our heads as we don't plan to retire here. But I think during one of your briefings, you mentioned how there might be bunkers around this local area. So when we were in the very first strategic aerospace wing, that we got the very pretty Atlas E intercontinentalistic missiles. And those missiles were actually placed in nine areas across the Spokane region in little launch complex locations. And these missile sites, while they have since been decommissioned, some are still fully there, fully built. And I know I heard this last October that one was turned into a like a haunted tour. Oh, cool. Um, so some of them you can still actually go inside, okay. um, which is a, a fun thing to do, I think, around Halloween. Sure. <laughs> are they actually the silos then for the... So they're the the old facilities. Now, the missiles are not inside them anymore. (laughs) But these Atlas missile sites were the very first nine missile sites to come online during the Cold War, which means that when the Cuban Missile Crisis really started to grasp the country and take everybody's attention, and we start hearing reports of uh, the president threatening to launch the missiles if tensions get any higher, the first nine missiles to deploy would have come from Spokane. Oh, wow. Because they were the first to come online. Okay. And I've heard rumor, I think because there's one in Airway Heights, that the property was for sale at some point. My husband actually was just looking at old missile silos, and he wants to live in one now. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't know about that. 20 stories. No, uh, no, we're not moving into a missile silo. I don't know how... Um, <laughs> conducive to living they would be. I have not had a chance to go inside any. I just, I know where they're located. I have the map. <laughs> we'll have to get you to FE or something, or Minot. They've got their missile silos. FE Warren actually has a training silo, so instead of having to actually climb down all the rungs on the ladder, you can actually just go down all the stairs, and there's still quite a few stairs. But, I, yeah. I, I My ladder days are going to be behind me soon, coming off the 135. I don't think I could live in a silo without an elevator (laughs) he thinks it's the greatest idea ever but no they're really really cool i i I haven't gotten to see any of these so i don't know how easy they would be to get into or if they've modified any for those people that do not want to climb down 18 stories of ladder but it would be kind of cool to see them for sure yeah the, uh, the photographs are very interesting. Now, I haven't seen any of deep inside a facility. From what I understand, these were the type of missiles that the, they were put in place straight up and then lowered down. Oh, wow. So okay. in order to launch, you'd have to lift them back up and then launch them. Oh, wow. Um, but it is very fun to look at the photographs. We talk about how awful sea burning training is sure. and learning how to put on that those materials and take off those materials. But when you look at what these missile silo airmen had to put on it literally looks like a spacesuit and they every single one of them look absolutely miserable and i am so glad i don't have to learn how to do that (laughs) huh i'll have to come by and look at those pictures sometime absolutely you Um, mentioned events like the silo and maybe them having haunted houses 
I think before we started the podcast, you mentioned uh, some things that you're working on with the community, some yes. events. So there are a couple of museums in the area that offer what's called Blue Star Museum Days. One in particular that we've been talking to recently is the Northwestern Museum of Arts and Culture, also known as the MAC. Um, in the downtown area, they are going to start their Blue Star Days in on, on Armed Forces Day, and mm-hmm. it will go through Labor Day. Oh, wow. But basically what that means is that if you walk in and you show your military ID, whether you are an active duty airman, a guard component, reservist, or their family, okay. if you show that ID card, you get into the museum for free. Nice. And from what I understand, they have some pretty cool exhibits that are planning to come online this summer that will be family friendly. Excellent. So that gives you one more thing to do in the Spokane area, maybe on a rainy day, if you want to stay out of the sun or out of the rain, that gives you an option to do. I would love a rainy day in the summertime <laughs> here. Last year was rough for anyone who wasn't here. We had a, what, a week or two of pretty much being on the hundreds. Mm-hmm. It, that was rough. So, so I'll take the rain anytime in the summer here. So the other birthday that we have coming up on the 1st is March 1st, 1942, is the day that the 92nd Bomb Group activated at Barksdale Field, Louisiana. Okay. So they were the predecessor to our ops group, and they it was really just an on-paper activation. They had a few B-17s, but they activated in Louisiana and then almost immediately went over to the European Theater and proceeded to participate in some pretty cool operations. We talk about our mission set of air air evacuation. Sure, yeah. We like to say that today's mission, we participate in air evacuations with operations like OAR and the events that we've seen in the last year. Well, even all the way back in World War II, our 92nd Ops Group was helping with air evacuations when they participated in what became known as the Green Project. So the Green Project took evacuees from France. Sometimes they would fly them to Italy, sometimes they fly them to Europe, but they would get them out of occupied France and to safety and they would, I think I misspoke, they get them from Italy and from France okay. and get them over to Europe Okay. where they were safely placed in a refugee area. Okay. Just like we see in OER today. Nice. They also, the 92nd Bomb Group, also participated in the Normandy invasion. So we actually, when you look at our guidons, you'll see a, uh, a banner, a streamer for... Normandy because our bombardment group participated in three flying sorties that day. One of the flying sorties did get canceled because the it was the second sortie that got canceled, but the when they stormed the beaches, the sand kicked up so much dirt oh, wow. that it browned out the ability to fly in for support. Sure. And so most of the day they spent um, waiting for the sand to go down so that they could continue support, supporting and so that they could see where they were going. But the the bombardment and the aerial support was so impressive that it actually was one of the reasons why a lot of the Army generals went to Congress and petitioned for the Air Force to become its own entity. Oh, cool. So we participated in one of the very operations that proved the Air Force deserved to be its own separate force. Um, So 
there's fun stuff like that. And then we all know about the, the Red Morgan Center and that Red Morgan is our Medal of Honor recipient. But we don't often talk about how he's connected to us and his connection to us is actually through World War II and the 92nd Ops Group. He was a co-pilot during a bomb run over Germany. As he was flying in, their bomb run came under fire and one of the shots came through the front windshield and actually hit his pilot. And it caused enough damage that his pilot received a severe head wound and no longer could fly the aircraft. In fact, he was so disoriented that he began fighting Morgan mm. for control of the aircraft. And he, they would have crashed if Morgan hadn't have had the mindset to wrestle the control back from the pilot, pull the plane back into formation, and try to hold off the, the crazed pilot as they're completing their bombing mission. Now, by this point, the plane had sustained enough damage that it took a while for any of the other airmen on board to be able to come and assist him with that. Okay. So he spent a good period of time actually with one hand on the controls and one hand pushing off the other pilot. And because of his actions, the all of the other crew members survived that particular occasion. Now, the pilot that was injured and hit, he did not survive, um, but his action was enough to earn him the Medal of Honor. That's awesome. Um, so when we talk about the Red Morgan Center, all of that history and all of that pressure under fire is why that facility is named after him and in That's his awesome. honor. That's awesome. Have we gotten to... Was that was this when we were still technically Army Air Corps, or is this? We did not become Air Force until about 1947. So in November 17, on November 17, 1947, the 92nd Bombardment Wing activated at Spokane. Now, when I say this, I say this with a point of grace because Air Force lineage and honors is a little hard to understand unless you understand the lingo that they use. So there is a 92nd Bombardment Wing during World War II. Okay. But it has absolutely nothing to do with the 92nd Bombardment Wing that activated under the Air Force. So one's an Army entity, one's an Air Force entity. The big key factor there is the word disbanded. So when you look at a lineage and honors paper, if they use the word inactivated, that means there's the option to reactivate sure. it. If they use the word disbanded, that means there is no option to bring it back online okay. ever again. Okay. In 1947, the Air Force activated the 92nd Bombardment Wing as a completely separate entity from the one that we know in the Army Air Force. And they assigned this wing to Spokane under Strategic Air Command. Um, and two months later, the installation changed its name to Spokane Air Force Base. Okay. And so that's when we see the real heart of 92nd being here and all of the mission sets of bombardment and refueling happening here at Fairchild. And it's not really until 1994 and the 1995 timeframe that we see the bombardment planes leave 
and head over to Air Combat Command. Sure. And aerial refueling being the primary mission set here in Fairchild. And this sounds like a great place to end this episode. So then we can talk about how Fairchild Air Force Base becomes Fairchild Air Force Base in our mm-hmm. next one. Would you agree? Absolutely. All right. Thank you for being here for this episode. We'll continue on the next one. And for my airmen out there listening, you guys have a spectacular day. Up another episode. If you guys want to be on the podcast or know someone who might want to, or possibly have an idea for a podcast, please have them reach out. They can hit me up at 92foxtrotsierrasierra.foxtrotsierradeltapapa.fairchildcharliealphaalpha.us.af.mil. And until next time, you guys have a spectacular day. <laughs>